Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel. This episode, the only one in this podcast series in her own voice, was originally broadcast on CBC Radio in 1964. I'm Anthony Berger, the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. When my friend phoned me from Portland Creek and said, the river's just right, come down for an evening's fishing, I felt as if someone had called me from Mars and invited me to dinner. You see, a few years ago, to visit Portland Creek would have been a major expedition, fraught with danger of shipwreck, a visit of uncertain duration, since the wrong wind or too much would have marooned me for a week. Now I'm 55 miles from my friend, on a dirt road that meanders along the finger of the northwest coast of Newfoundland, reaches the top and swings east to St. Anthony, where for the moment it ends. It's known as the Road Down North. Ever since the coast was settled, first by fishermen from Labrador filtering down, and then by Jersey men buying cod, and by Frenchmen who fished for everything that could swim, the people have been isolated. More isolated, indeed, than on other parts of the island, because of the lack of harbours along the coast and the uncertain prevailing weather. Then last year, the ultimate link of road was closed and 10,000 people suddenly found themselves within reach of the world, a large part of which has been beating a path to their doors ever since. A sociologist could make what might well become a classic study of the people on this coast and the effects of the sudden access to the rest of the world and the inundation of strangers. I can only report what I have seen happen to my friends. It used to be said that along the northwest coast were only rampikes and poverty. Well, there's plenty of those commodities now, but there's also a landscape that would take your breath away, majestic, empty, haunting. And the landscape has had its effect on the people, though they themselves, having no basis of comparison, couldn't truly appreciate its beauty. And now I'm afraid they'll never be left alone long enough to enjoy it, for the forces of civilization are bearing down on them. I remember when I first traveled the coast, walking partway on headland trails, cadging rides in motorboats from one cove to another, and I would be fed and given a bed by people I'd never even seen before. All I had to do was knock on a door. And believe me, that hospitality was not repaid in money. The good breeding of the people always made me feel humble. They had time to be courteous, and their courtesy was born of a genuine concern for others. My dear old friend Hibbert Keynes unwittingly defined it when he told me a story about his youth. He said that a crabbed old clergyman was holding forth about the dirty housekeepers in Cowhead when he turned to Keynes and berated him for smoking a pipe, ending with, Don't you know that cleanliness is next to godliness? Keynes, having heard enough carping, took his pipe out of his mouth and said, Cleanliness is next to godliness, you say. Well, I say, agreeableness is pure heaven. The only agreeable ones left on the coast now, that is to say agreeable in Hibbert's sense of the word, are the old people. The rest are much too busy. Already befuddled by the talk of hundreds of irresponsible salesmen, 
they're flinging away their hard-earned money on the useless but conventional symbols of modern prosperity. Con bought a deep freeze and a jukebox last week. He filled the deep freeze with ice cream, cokes and hot dogs and set up in business, trusting the jukebox to lure customers. The jukebox wouldn't work. Not even when Con lifted it, shook it vigorously and dropped it with a resounding bang. And now, as he put it, it doesn't work at all. But a respected businessman of seventy-odd, returning from his first trip to the city of Cornerbrook, told me, I bought a car and a truck, and then I bought two coffins, one for the wife and one for myself. And then I went to the liquor store and I got nine bottles of rum. Because I'd be willing to bet that his wife bought a Chesterfield suit, as they call them, and a chrome set. The jukeboxes, chrome sets, overstuffed chairs mark the progress of the road. And so do what they describe as bath outfits, which of course are tubs, basins and lavatories and the necessary fixtures, and fuel oil stoves with hot water tanks and plastic pipe to bring water into the houses. All of which is gratifying, because it's high time that my people on the coast had some creature comforts. And no longer did the women have to bring turns of water for laundry, nor do the men have to spend freezing weeks in the woods cutting and hauling firewood. Having the road means that the oil trucks can deliver fuel frequently, and so we can all throw out our old wood stoves. The rhythm of life has indeed changed, particularly in the traditional occupations of fishing and pulpwood cutting. Up in Cook's Harbour, for instance, at the end of the fishing season, when the cod had to be salted and dried, the men carried it on their backs or in handcarts to the barrens to lay it in the sun. And now the trucks whiz along over the rocks, dropping their bundles of wet fish and picking up the dry, and it's easier to cure a thousand kettles than it used to be to do a hundred. And that means real money, with dry cod as much sometimes as twenty dollars a kettle. The woodsman used to pack his gear and grub and go into camp for several months. Now a company bus fetches and delivers him every day, and for the women, too, this is a kind of revolution, because no longer do they carry the burden of running the house and bringing up the children all alone. Father may be tired when he gets home from a nine-hour work day and a long journey, but he's not too tired to exert his authority. And for the women, the road means a lifeline to the doctor in the hospital. Mrs. Hopkins reminded me of the last time she saw me down in Norris Point, sixty miles from her home, when she had come fourteen hours in a motor dory in the wake of a hurricane with a pregnant woman who had just reached hospital in time to have her life and that of her baby saved. The same Mrs. Hopkins had just come back from the same hospital to which she had set out six hours before with a child in convulsions. Tears ran down her cheeks when she said, My dear, you'll never know what that road means to us down here on this coast with no doctor and no hospital till Norris Point. Probably this outweighs the less commendable effects of the road, and certainly if I lived in Bard Harbour, I would say so. But the trouble is, the people on the coast are having creature comforts thrust on them that probably will turn out to be very expensive and not so comforting. The CNT, for example, went hurtling north in the wake of the road builders, stringing wires as they went, and suddenly everybody wanted a telephone. One woman, on acquiring her, sat all day with the receiver to her ear in case somebody wanted to talk to her. 
Which reminds me of Lawrence Darrell's definition that the telephone is the modern symbol of communication that never takes place. And mail trucks deliver every day to villages that once received mail every two weeks. The trucks disgorge catalogues of goods that nobody needs, advertisements for everything under the sun, incomprehensible forms to cover expanding bureaucracy and, I suppose, a few personal letters. Other trucks bring intriguing foods within reach of everybody, and naturally everybody's happy to relieve the monotony of fresh fish and potatoes and garden greens, and wild berries and meat in season. So now they have to cope with empty tins, and they haven't got any idea what to do with the mountain piles. You can tell how long a road through any village has been laid by the height of the Cannes Mountain. In one of the cleaner, because more northerly villages, a man who feeds his six children on fresh milk and homemade butter and fresh beef in the fall gave me a new view of this road when he said, I allows I'll have to get rid of me cattle. I can't afford to have them killed one by one with trucks and cars. And nobody down the coast knows what to make of it all. Now, at the moment, youngsters from 8 to 18 spend most of their time in dirty shacks eating hot dogs and chips and jiving to the jukeboxes that the roads brought them. But they are also climbing on big yellow buses that take them to wonderfully attractive new regional schools, where for the first time, youngsters down north can receive more than most elementary education. Teachers don't shudder anymore at the thought of isolation, not even the good ones, because they can get out on weekends. And there are more of them together in villages where the regional schools are built. These students even contemplate the idea of going to Memorial University, for now that they can get home by road rather than by the fortnightly coastal boat, St. John's is somehow nearer. And for me, that is the one great shining hopeful thing that the road down north has brought to my people. That was from a 1964 CBC radio broadcast by the late Ella Manuel. It's the only surviving recording of her reading the stories in this podcast series, Down to Sally's Cove. The other episodes are all read by me, Anthony Berger. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled... No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of Ella Manuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode for An Adventure Downshore with M. Tapper and Uncle Eli. <laughs>